Welcome to the Year of Faith Discussion Series, presented by the Most Reverend Richard Lennon, Bishop of the Cleveland Catholic Diocese. This series is presented in concert with the Holy Father's request that there be opportunities for the faithful to deepen their appreciation and their knowledge of church teaching. From the Cathedral of St. John the Evangelist in downtown Cleveland, Bishop Lennon speaks to the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Today's document is the Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religions. Well, again, it's very nice to be here. And, um, you know, we started last week with this uh, subject of the Declaration on the Church's relationship to non-Christian groups. And so last week we laid some of the foundation, and we briefly, because in the document it was very brief, about Hindus and Buddhists. It was a very, very small section. Um, Before I get into today's, I just want to review just one thing, that uh, sometimes, and we'll get into this more in May, but I do want to say a little bit today that this document and the one that we did in March, we will see in May, were often misunderstood and we will see that under the guise of, of religious freedom. And so the church reminds us it between the Hindus and the Buddhists on the one hand and now getting ready to go into the Muslims. And the reason that there's a, a distinction there is because the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians all worship God, the, you know, the, you know, and, and they are people of Abraham. So that the biblical sense unites those three minimally, you know, to some degree with the Muslims, but still Abraham was their father, just as he was, you know, the, our father in faith, the first Eucharistic prayer says. And so, you know, the Hindus and the, uh, and the Buddhists and the Shintos, they would not have a relationship like that. But this is the line that I want to mention because the church feels at this point that it had to put this in. The church ever must proclaim Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, in whom all people may find the fullness of religious life. I'm sure that none of us disagree with that at all, that it is the way of Christ that is is paramount. It is the most significant. It's almost as if the church had a premonition that that needed to be said because of uh, people might misunderstand some of the things, like last week when we said that the church recognizes that even in some of these groups, there can be elements of the truth, not the whole truth, but elements of it. And as we will see in the 60s and the 70s, many people embraced other things as if they were equal to it. But on we go to the Muslims. The Muslims, first of all, they revere Christ. Not as God, 
as the last of the great prophets before Muhammad. They also have great devotion to Mary. So there are, you're seeing some, some points of contact. Not that they would believe the same things. I'm not suggesting that at all. But they would recognize Jesus. They would recognize Mary. They adore one God. So it's very different from the, you know, at the time in the, you know, in the 600s when the Muslims came about, there were many of the ancient religions that still had many gods. But the Muslims held and still hold to one God. Jesus is a great prophet. And Mary is a very special person in God's plan. They don't get much more than that, but at least it is a point of contact, a point where there are similarities. The church is very frank, saying that in the past there have been terrible hostilities between Christians, which really means Catholics, by and large, with, you know, something with the Greek Orthodox, but this is before Protestantism and the Muslims. And, and, and that's come down to us in the story of, you know, of the Crusades. You know, I mean, that's what the Crusades were about, winning back the holy places from the Muslims who had taken it over. You know, the Muslims were very uh, aggressive uh, in that whole area of Arabia and, uh, you know, parts of Lebanon, you know, uh, present-day Lebanon and uh, Syria, and then across North Africa. North Africa used to be a very strong part of the Catholic Church. You know, when I was ordained a bishop, for example, when you become a bishop, you have to have a diocese. And my diocese was the Diocese of Sufis. I never went there. Uh, Sufis is in Morocco, and it was wiped out by the Muslims back in the 600s. You know, and that's, I mean, that's the story of, you know, of the expansionism of, of the Muslims. It was very aggressive. It was, uh, you know, belligerent and, and all, and it just swept aside everything that was in its uh, way. The church recognizes what they did and what we did as Catholics, and they say those hostilities need to be bygones. And then it goes into a very strong statement urging everyone, Muslim and Catholics, to strive for mutual understanding, number one. Now, that was 50 years ago. If anything, that has even become more and more imperative in light of the world situation and the tensions across a large part of the world. You know, and, you know, many times it involves Muslims. And what they're saying is we really do have to try to understand each other. 
lack of understanding brings hostilities. If we can have some understanding, there might be some common grounds that we can, you know, uh, work together with. The, you know, the Muslims and you know, and Catholics must come together in these four points. Social justice, moral values, peace, and freedom. That's what the Catholic Church taught as those four things are so fundamental that you know, uh, inviting the Muslims and, and, and urging the Catholics to work. I mean, you know, it's different language. You talk to your own people saying, look, you've got to incorporate it. You invite the others, uh, you know, because you don't have a teaching role. So you are, uh, you know, an encourager that we really do need to work on those four things, social justice, moral values, peace, and freedom. Now let me move on. The largest part of this very small document, almost half of the whole document, is on Judaism. It, it, it recognizes right from the beginning that there's a real closeness between Judaism and, and, and you know, Catholicism. In fact, all of Christianity. First and foremost... It is through Judaism that God's revelation, called the Old Testament, comes to us. Remember, that was the first little pamphlet that we studied back in February. No, in January, excuse me, in January. You know, about revelation. Well, revelation came through the Jews. You know, when you look at a Bible... There are 72 books in that Bible. 72. The first 45 are in the Old Testament. And they are our scriptures. They're the Jewish scriptures also. And with Christ, the fullness of time, the Savior comes. Judaism officially does not recognize it. We do. And interesting, the very first heresy in the church was saying that the Old Testament was not true. There was a priest by the name of Martian. And so that was the first heresy. And the church said, no, no, wait a second. The Old Testament is God's revelation. It prepared the way for Christ. It, it helped people identify him, see him. You know, one of the most beautiful sections is during Holy Week in the prophet Isaiah. Four days in Holy Week. The reading from Isaiah is the lamb that was led to the slaughter. And that is seen as a type of Christ. He was the innocent one who was taken to the slaughter for the sake of others. So the Old Testament was preparatory to the coming of Christ. So the church, first of all, says there is a kinship between Judaism and Catholicism. We receive these spiritual treasures through Judaism. 
Now, we as believers in Jesus Christ say, yes, we accept that, but there was so much more once Christ came. The, you know, God's salvation became present within us. And therefore, you know, there is not a complete compatibility. You know, the church is not suggesting that. But they are saying, historically and theologically, God's revelation came to us, the Old Testament, those 45 books came to us through Judaism. Judaism received it, preserved it, and we then made it ours also. So the church is saying there are points here that are very, very, uh, you know, uh, similar, and we need to always be grateful for that. There are spiritual ties between Judaism and ourselves. The church recognizes that in the past the relationship has not always been wonderful between Catholics and Jews. And as a result, the church addressed it in this document. They admitted that there were things such as who was responsible for the death of Christ. Now, there's a book that was written back in the 60s by a priest from Providence, Rhode Island. He was out walking one night. And there was a couple in front of him, young man and a young lady. And they're walking by his church. He's behind them. And he hears the woman say to the man, every time I see that cross, I get very nervous. The priest, you know, he was uh, taken aback. And he went up to the couple and he said, I just overheard you. Why would you feel that way? Because the cross to us is a sign of God's love. You know, so I mean, it's not something that we get frightened about, about the cross. It's, it is the sign of God's love that Jesus suffered so that we might live. The young lady said to the priest, because it's under that sign that we suffered terribly. The priest You know, he went and, you know, I mean, they left and he went into his house, the rectory. But as time went on, he started to study and he wrote a wonderful book. It was about 250 pages, The Anguish of the Jews. A very fine priest. I did get to meet him. Uh, He was a very, he was old then, you know, when I came along to meet him, but... um, you know, it was something that really troubled him. And he documented this. Uh, it's a wonderful piece of history. The story isn't all that good at times, but, you know, uh, you know, but, I mean, it's all footnoted, uh, you know, of documents and everything else. So, I mean, it's not that, um, you know, I mean, I mean, it's not fictionalized at all. It's the story. For better or for worse, that's what happened. For example... If I asked you what happened in 1492, what would you say? 1492, what comes to your mind? Yes, what? Columbus, what does he do? 
discovered America. But in 1492, in Spain also, in Spain, the Muslims were driven out of Spain. Now, they had been around for 700 years, and the Christian armies fought them and drove them across the Straits of Gibraltar back to North Africa. So that's the first worldwide event in 1492. The second one was in Spain. I mean, Spain was the power in 1492. England doesn't come along for another 60, 70 years. But Spain is the European power. Jews have a choice. You either become a Christian or you leave. That is, you know, an example of how the Jews were treated. You weren't a Christian, therefore you become a Christian or you leave. And they were driven, literally driven out of Spain. Some converted, but you can imagine you know, I mean, you know, we can imagine being forced to do something. How, how genuine is it? You know, we'll talk about that in May when we speak about freedom of religion. But I mean, it, it wasn't really a free choice. You know, you had a big farm, and now you're going to lose everything. So, you know, some converted because they didn't want to lose their, you know, their uh, patrimony, their you know, their money or whatever. And, and, and so, but that's the things that happened. Now, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go through, you know, 20 centuries because we got about six minutes. <laughs> so we're not going to quite make it today. But, it's, you know, but it's those examples, though, that are very real. I mean, any history book you picked up, I mean, they will tell you that the Columbus event was the, you know, the least significant initially becomes a, a real big event later on. But the people in Spain and Portugal and France, they were affected by the Muslims are gone and the Jews are either becoming Christian or they're being pushed. And that's where a lot of them then begin to go to places like Poland and uh, other sections of Eastern Europe. Because Spain has driven them out. You're gone. And, and, and then they just took over their property and the whole thing. Okay, the, you know, the, you know, you know, the church's relationship with the Jews, because of spiritual reasons, historical reasons, and theological reasons, of all the other non-Christian religions, the church has spent the most time over these past 50 years trying to get to know the Jewish people better, having the Jewish people get to know us better, trying to rewrite some of that, um, you know, animosity, that suspicion, that, you know, bad stuff that was in the past. And it was. And, you know, and tried to get over that. So I think that that is a very, very important thing. As to the death of Christ... I want to read to you two lines from the creed. You know, you know, the creed, our creed. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, 
He suffered death and was buried. Jesus' death. Yes, there were Jewish people that wanted him dead. You know, we're not going to deny that. The Romans killed him. It was under Pontius Pilate he died. But the reason he died was so that all people would be free from sin and able to enter eternal happiness. And for years, centuries, we, you know, there was that whole thing about, you know, the anti-Semitism because the Jews were the Christ killers. They weren't the Christ killers. I mean, historically, in our own creed, the Christ, you know, the Christ killers literally were the Romans. But the reason Christ died for was to overcome sin in all humanity. And yet for a number of centuries, the Jews lived under that thing that they were the Christ killers. And that became a real burden for them because someone 14 centuries later is getting blamed for something that had happened before. I mean, can you imagine that you're being blamed for what your grandfather did somewhere else? I mean, you know, in the Bible it says, you know, a son does not carry his father's sins. And yet that was labeled for all Jews. Thankfully, you know, we don't, you know, I mean, that's not, you know, accepted. The church has certainly said very strongly that any anti-Semitism is uh, wrong. And in fact, any, you know, know, uh, approach to any group of people. So it's not just against Jewish people, but to be against a group of people for some unknown reason, an unsubstantiated reason, is just unacceptable. You've been listening to a discussion of the documents of the Second Vatican Council as part of the Year of Faith discussion series presented by the Most Reverend Richard Lennon, Bishop of the Diocese of Cleveland. This series is presented in concert with the Holy Father's request that there be opportunities for the faithful to deepen their appreciation and their knowledge of church teaching during this special Year of Faith. To watch all the videos in this series, go to our website, dioceseofcleveland.org slash year of faith. Thank you for listening.